Hello everybody, my name is Ben and welcome. Uh, welcome to those from Class A East here in Portland, Oregon and certainly to those listening from beyond. I wonder how this finds you. I've been wondering that every time I sit out here and make these recordings, I'm sitting out in the shed that I built uh, over the winter. No rain today, but I think you'll hear some gusting wind. It is brutal. I live just on the west side of the the end of the Columbia River Gorge, and when the wind comes howling through there, and it is today, <laughs> man, does it pound us! So, you know, I've had a branch hit me on top of, on the top of the roof, and it freaks me out. So, if if that happens, you know, um, peace be with you. I guess we are in the fifth week of Easter, and following the lectionary text, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary. Today, we come to the passage that begins John chapter fourteen. And my goodness, uh, you know, if you've been following, you know, with our sermons or been a part of the community at Colossae East, um, we, we refer to this all the time. Today it comes to us, and, and as we engage with it, oh man, does it, it just kind of lights up my heart and soul, and it sparks a different kind of hope for me. And uh, I hope the same kind of thing happens for you. I think it will, because I think it's of the Spirit. It certainly isn't something that I came up with. So, this passage is the beginning of a sermon or a talk that Jesus gives right after the Last Supper. If you remember that moment, some will call it the Upper Room Discourse, they were coming right on the cusp of his crucifixion and death, or we might say his departure. That's interesting, just for a moment to consider he's going to depart to be with the Father, who the other scriptures describe as omnipresent. To be with the Father who is always with us. How interesting. So departure, maybe we put quote unquote around. But this is a really comforting sermon, and the passages from the sermon are always in the lineup between Easter and Pentecost, so it's no surprise we're here today. And he's going to say in these texts uh, that that he, Jesus, is the only way, and we're going to have to wonder what that means. You know, that's a major claim. For any generation, I think it's a major claim for <laughs> modern Portland, for sure. He's the only way. Nobody wants anything to be the only way. And then we have to wonder what he means when he says, if you're looking at me, you're looking at God himself, the Father, for real, realsies. And what could that mean? And I'll just say this. Uh, by not taking seriously the truth that Jesus is God, I learned all that stuff a lot, you know, Trinity and Father, Son, Spirit are all equal and all that. But it's just like I never really took seriously that you're looking at the nature of God, his character in Jesus. I was taught, like uh, Dallas Willard says, that some some of us are raised to be vampire Christians. <laughs> we go to Jesus for a little blood and get real excited, you know, his blood covers our sin and it and it uh, absolves us from guilt and shame and, and those are wonderful things, but sometimes we forget, you know, also glean some source, like straight from the source information about uh, what God is like. And by missing that, uh, I missed the nature of God and became very afraid of him. Uh, I thought of Jesus as like this nice, forgiving, healing person, but like the God over him, I sort of was taught, you know. 
was not all about love. He was like this blend of love and hate. And to really know him, you had to know how much he hated you if you were sinful. So, you know, the presentations of the gospel or God to me with all these Bible verses always landed me in this place where it's like, oh, wow, you're, you're super great. But boy, I don't want to, you know, piss you off because you're going to burn me for. So it was real uh, tense, you know. It never made sense to me because the, the same folks who who said that, like, your brokenness is going to put you in a really bad spot. God is not going to let you're going to become worthless like that kind of feeling. They also always said that uh, everybody's sinful and would repeat verses from Romans, you know, all fall short of the glory of God. And, and then they it was like we had these categories for believing Certain kind of people or religions or groups or behaviors were like especially sinful. Um, you know, in our groups, the sins that were acceptable were like pride and overworking, <laughs> uh, probably overeating. The bad ones, you know, like saying bad words or having sex the wrong way or whatever, those ones make God want to kill you and destroy you and punish you and that kind of thing. Uh, or at least you know, burn you for trillions and trillions of years. So not everybody has experienced this kind of teaching. I'm I'm aware of that. But my goodness, did it mess me up? And being a modern American and a pastor now for over 10 years, this, this is what I encounter all the time, without any question, mostly, in almost everybody. We have this sense that we need to be close to God, or it's all about a quote-unquote relationship with God. But he is so scary. So the only healing that has ever come to me from that evil deception and that destruction of my life has come through a sense of who Jesus is, informed by his own words in the New Testament. I'm telling you, studying closely the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, paying deep attention to everything Jesus is saying, attention to what he's doing, attention to the kinds of people he's dealing with and how he's dealing with them, and then saying, I'm looking at the nature of God himself. Ooh, oh, does it change your framework for understanding the sovereign deity? And and that, my friend, that is what we're looking at today. What does it mean to say that he is the only way and to see him and to see the Father at the same time as he says, you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. St. Augustine said, walk by the man and thou wilt arrive at God. Walk by the man and thou wilt arrive at God. Well, that's... Oh, there it is. You hear that? That was a branch from the pine tree above my <laughs> Okay. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say. <laughs> that is not planned, but I'm telling you. Maybe it was a big pine cone. But let's see what Jesus has to say. John uh, chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 today, and I'm going to read it all the way through. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And I want you to just remember, this is the Lord's Supper moment. You know, they just finished eating. They're probably, uh, you know, drying off their hands or something, drinking some wine. And now Jesus is going to share, I think it's the most intimate sermon of his life on earth. It's This is it. I mean, this is the heart of Jesus in his last moments, you know. And here's what he says, John 14, verse 1. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And trust also in me. Uh, sorry, pause for a second. Do not let your hearts. In the Greek, that is a singular. Now, I understand there's a couple translations that'll go with the hearts because we know he's talking to a plurality. I'm going to come back to this later. I'm almost positive that it means to be heart. And you'll see that in some English translations and not in others. But don't let your heart. I think it means a collective heart. The heart togetherness of who you are. We'll come back to it. For right now, we'll just read it as is. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. And if this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. Well, no, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father, who lives in me, does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it's amazing. I love how right at the end, you know, at least believe because of what you've watched me do. It's almost like he's given a wink and a nod, like, look, man, I get it. This is crazy stuff to believe, but you watched me change the weather over Galilee when you were freaking out, you know? You watched us when we had a little lunchbox full of food and we turned it into a meal for like 15,000 people. Yeah, it's recorded 5,000 men. Huge group. You watched me. You saw my works. Believe what I'm talking I'm not full of crap. Come on. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, he says, you will, you who believe in me will do the same works that I've done. I, I really love this passage right at the end because of this wide expansiveness about the miracle and work. The miracles, we, we salivate over it. You know, it's like a, oh, if only I could have seen that. But it's a physical change. The deep change of my heart and soul, I think, is more miraculous than if God had literally healed a broken bone or my own blindness, to recognize what it means to change humanity, a person. Not only that, but he's he's relegated to these few years in first century, you know, Palestine-Israel world. 
and and in the Father who's omnipresent with all of us, it's almost as though all of the work that was so contained to his few years and a lot of that miraculous work, just physical, he says, you'll be with me in this new way all over the planet doing things even greater. It's beautiful. Well, okay. Uh, what I want to focus on here is is the very beginning part. And then we'll kind of pace through it and, and make a few points along the way. Remember, I said we'll come back to this notion of heart uh, being singular. And then I also want to look at the sense of being troubled. Um, we have a little more emphasis to pay attention to. The same verb in the very beginning. So, for, verse 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. That verb, be troubled, uh, in the New English translation. I really like the New English translation, too, the Net Bible. Um, they render it distressed. And note that it is used to describe the same verb. So, troubled it can mean a lot of things to us, right? Like, ooh, he's really troubled. The Packers didn't win. Or, he's troubled. His, you know, there's a major catastrophe. You know, COVID hit the world. <laughs> Something like that. So, troubled can mean different things. In John's writing, in chapter 11, and in 12, and in 13, he uses this verb to describe Jesus' own st- emotional, personal state. Jesus, too, was troubled. And in those moments, Jesus is looking ahead to the events of evening and the next day. So it's when Jesus is looking at his false arrest, false trial, brutal murder, crucifixion, you know, horrendous humiliation that he's troubled. (laughs) That kind of troubled. So there's a huge emphatic on this do not be troubled. It's not like Hey, man, don't worry at all. It's don't be greatly, deeply, horribly distressed. Other English translations will render it don't be too troubled. There's a deep imperative sense of don't stay troubled. And it is in the imperative Greek. So think exclamation point. Don't do this. And then it's also don't be too troubled or don't remain troubled. And and you kind of have to pause for a second there and say, huh. You see this sort of graciousness of Jesus. It's like his deep understanding in this moment. We have to pay attention to it. Uh, you know, he's, he's understanding that there's a reason we would be troubled. Right before this sermon, um, he is, he's having this close, you know, not a socially distant meal in the Last Supper. They're all together. Um, and as and as they're gathered, they're, these, these are his disciples, his most devoted students, his learners. And he has just talked about his own personal weakness, his own fallibility. So in the Lord's Supper, he's saying, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to be arrested. It's going to get really gnarly for me. I'm going to be shown as a weak human being. Also, he said he's the son of God. <laughs> so it's like, what? He's just told his friends he's not going to rise up in power over Rome or the, or the religious elite who are oppressing people, but instead he's going to suffer and die at their hand. He's just said that to them right before he says, don't be troubled. And the most devoted of all, you know, back in the Lord's Supper moment, has just heard from Jesus that he too is going to fail. He's he's going to actually deny Christ, Jesus says, and, and Peter's like, uh-uh, not going to happen. And, and Peter's having a really hard time believing that. The whole crew, I think, is troubled. 
And guess what? I think that the language Jesus uses suggests that's okay. The Bible sort of explains human reality for us when we pay really close attention to it. By using this very strong, dramatic verb, we know he's acknowledging a reality that we will be troubled when our leaders don't follow through in ways that we had hoped. Uh, Has anybody listening here uh, watched any news reports in the last 60 days? (laughs) Perhaps you've experienced a sense of troubledness. (laughs) I, I have at least twice. And as I look at the leaders, be they medical or government or military or whoever's at the microphone, I get a little bit troubled. I don't know that they actually are following through on the ways everybody would hope. And I think that's pretty normal. We'll all have to face the deep undependability of our leaders that are over us, whether they're at the work that you are in or, you know, the neighborhood association. (laughs) That can, you know, that gets rough sometimes. Uh, Leaders that we see in the government, education. What about church leaders? Will we be troubled when we're facing the broken nature that we all bring to every single table every day? Yeah, we're going to be troubled. It hurts. But Jesus' wisdom teaches us to not stay in that spot. You know, an earlier version of Christianity given to me was like always maintaining this. If you're happy and you know what, clap your hands. Pa, pa, if you're happy. This sort of don't be troubled, don't be sad, hoop de hoop de hoop and, and it wasn't real. So I always thought that, well, if I want to be with God, I've got to be a fakey kind of guy. But I don't think that's it. Jesus acknowledges, of course, this is going to be brutal. And he acknowledges it in his own way of life. I just said there's three places in the chapters preceding this where he says, I am greatly distressed. (laughs) He's deeply at turmoil. He responds. But he says this really interesting thing. You don't have to stay there. It's not the way we are meant to live. It's almost as though it proves, because that troubledness destroys your heart and soul, doesn't it? It does. It wrecks us. It makes us so tired. But it's so out of our control to get to that spot. You know, you get punched in the face, you're troubled. You get everything shut down by COVID, you're troubled. It's just going to happen. But it's like Jesus says, if you just, okay, human being, I'm there with you. But you don't have to stay there. Don't be too troubled. Learn from this. See what you can. And continue walking forward in your life. My counselor, when I meet with her, often talks about as I process deep emotion. She teaches me to to feel them, but also to let them pass through. To focus or to pay attention to where I'm harboring some of that evil that just hits us because we're in a broken world. And there's another sort of interesting wink and a nod here, I think, from Jesus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in his use of the word heart. He is talking to this whole group. All of his other words to them, so in this whole paragraph, the second and third person verbs are all in the plural. You know, he's talking to this group or talking about them in the plurality. So we would totally expect him to say, in your hearts, not just heart. Like he'd be instructing them on their individual interior lives or something, you know. Each pay attention to your hearts. But this heart is singular. It's a collective heart, I think. It's a communal one. And if you, you know, focus on that for a moment, we could say that maybe we as a church community... 
in the ways that we speak about God and process the feelings and the ideas coming from the world around us. <laughs> and boy, are we doing that a lot these days, you know? Every Sunday when we gather on Zoom, we're, we're processing what's going on in our lives and we're thinking about the world. But we can, as a community, become so troubled or too troubled and thereby stop trusting. And I think I do see evidence of that kind of community around the world. I need not point fingers. You could just recognize them anytime where you see a community that's in a sort of desperate hustle, a place of deep, deep dissatisfaction, not the troubledness of normal daily life, but like uh, I'm, I'm stuck in it. You know, we don't want to be there. We can be troubled, but not stay there. And not become too troubled, as it says. And, I th and and we say, okay, but that sounds nice. How? I think we start with the foundation. And the foundation is trust. If we can start with we trust God, we can, God, we trust you. <laughs> and my prayers often, Father, we love you and we trust you. We trust, we trust, we trust. And then on top of that, we can process and question and learn and argue and all of that kind of thing. But we, at the baseline, we trust God. And at that level, our collective heart beats stronger. We can be who we are. We can weep when we need to. But we beat a heartbeat of love that doesn't die because we hold this trust in God who creates life. People can see and hear and feel the heart, the love of Jesus, I believe, in that kind of community heartbeat. On oh, so many pastors and scholars and many average everybody, people, Christians throughout all of our history have known that. Uh, if you are part of the church in a meaningful way and have been changed by the love of Jesus, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's interesting. I have felt, I have come to see that I've felt the heartbeat of Jesus and seen it sometimes in the most unexpected places. We'll have to come to that as we get to the next verses here. But no doubt, this is how the church grew during such troubling times. This this acknowledgement of the heartbeat of God. Peter, I think, will later be killed for following Jesus. Many will experience viciousness toward them directly and then just viciousness in the world at large. From that first century start through those very intense first centuries and then, you know, you've got endless war, famine, plague. Here we are today in the corner of a country so far from Jesus' house in Nazareth. We're 2,000 years later. I've got pine cones landing on my steel roof above me in a, in a country that's about 200 years old. And all around me in the air, this disease is ravaging the world. Starvation and poverty, I can feel it coming like a tsunami. There's so much loss in the last 60 days. Here in Portland, in the midst of all of this chaos and brutality and questions and failing and brokenness and weakness, here we are in Portland, and a Christian named Ben Tartine, that's me, receives a text from a sister in Christ. Her name is Rhonda, from his own church community. And she's affirming that she had COVID a few weeks ago, and though was in the category for high risk, did survive. And then she's offering kind words of encouragement and thankfulness toward me and about the community at large and what it means to be loved by these people. 
And right there, the infinite love of God that binds two souls to the many souls of their church community in the love of God and all of the brutal trouble that they are both experiencing, that they suffer deep depression from and they suffer horrible anxiety from, Ben and Rhonda can walk to the park at six feet apart and sit at a picnic table that's ex- that's long and we can cry together about the brutality of this world right now and of our upbringing. We can reminisce on the nightmares that have returned since COVID started. We can talk about how troubled we are and then we can walk and we can talk and cry and pray. And then something rekindles a true hope. The trouble is there. The memory is still so real. You know it's never really over, even when it's over. But we're somehow coming alive with love and with light. And the troubledness, strong as it is, we're not staying there, Rhonda and me. And the community we belong to, all of you listening and beyond, our community really does love us. And we can tangibly feel and know the presence of God. And so the fear might cripple, brings me to my knees on certain days, but Jesus' love heals and it doesn't allow it to chain us or to destroy us. This gospel story is not written about our modern American struggles. I know that. It's good to remember that. But this experience of the disciples, if we see in their responses and how they suggest, you know, what the disciples are going through, I think we can at least relate to them and hear Jesus' words to folks in a similar boat. I mean, can we say something everyone experiences in one way or another is what's going on here? And I think their specific troubledness is complex. They're very bummed that Jesus has not turned out to be that conquering, vanquishing king sent to destroy Rome and all who have corrupted pure religion. (laughs) You know, he's not that. Or maybe he is doing that, but he's doing that with love instead of war. And he's got them in this place of troubledness, and he's going to leave what's going on. He's leaving them on their own. It's going to be bloody, he says. They don't quite know what this means. There's some hubbub. There's some conjecture. What is this going to mean for Jesus? What will it mean for his mission? What will it mean for us, for the future? You know, you and I are asking these questions, too. What does this mean for the church? I I mean, I've certainly been asking that question over these months. What does this mean for the next future of meeting together? Well, they're wondering that. Then compounding things just prior to this, at the very end of chapter 13, he's told them that where he's going, you know, sorry, you cannot come. (laughs) And that's problematic for them. That's, That's not cool. Let's just consider that whole verse for a moment. You know, really hear what he's saying. This is God speaking. He says, Dear little children, I am going to be with you just a little while longer. You're going to look all over the place for me. And as I told the Jewish people where I'm going, you cannot come. So I'm telling you too, for now. That's John 13, 33. I don't know about you, but that's really depressing. I think it would be for them too. But did you catch any glimpses of hope in there? I think you can see it in the way he opens. Dear little children. Can we see that when Jesus talks to his people that way, the Father is talking that way to people? 
And that's important because God sees us as his children. If I see a video of Hitler pulling a kid's hair to take away his ice cream cone, I don't know about you, but I rage on the inside. I see this wicked, rebellious, evil being that needs to be stopped. But if I see one of my own dear children, let's say Wesley, he's an eight-year-old. What if Wesley is pulling the hair of another kid so that he can steal that kid's ice cream cone? It's not that I don't care about what's happening. It's not that it doesn't matter to me. It does. I see my son harming himself, harming others, doing things that are destructive. But my heart moves toward love and instruction of my son because he's my kid. Helping him and teaching him. I don't move to, I need to viciously destroy him. And so this is a heartbeat of God, dear little children. So that's encouraging, even though the statement overall is fairly depressing. The last part that's encouraging is for now. The very ending words in the Greek, arti. Arti, for now. Yeah, Jesus is leaving. We can't go with. Yes, it'll be unable to find him wherever we look. But this is just for now. Hear these words from a New Testament scholar named Dale Bruner, and he summarizes Jesus' statement, I think, and it's a good paraphrase. I found it super helpful, so I'll read it. This is Jesus talking, you know. I know that all these hard realities are understandably very depressing to you, but please don't let your heart be too troubled. You cannot trust your colleagues completely, and if you are wise... You cannot even trust yourselves completely. But please remember the living God in whom you can trust completely. And please remember me, too, and my trustworthiness. Don't give up on us. Don't be too disheartened. I I think that's a fair paraphrase of these opening lines. And then Jesus adds some more light, I think, onto the scene. He gives us something to consider (laughs) deeply. Uh, Not until fairly recently have I really considered these next words too deeply. I got stuck uh, in Sunday school images of golden streets and so forth. But, uh, and you know, we're all going to have a mansion and the streets will be gold. And I just imagine how great my mansion will be. Well... Maybe. I think I missed a significant point here. So let's try to hear these next verses with fresh ears. All right. This, I'm, I'm in verse 2. We've been talking about other ones, but right now focus on verse 2 with me. There is more than enough room in my father's home, Jesus says. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you will know the way to where I am going. We really have to be wise with such an ambiguous amount of information here. What can we say with any real confidence? Well, we can say that the Father has some kind of real estate, yes. And and we can say to the very human question of where will I live in the future, Jesus seems to say that that's all squared up, lovingly prepared for us. God's got that. And I think where I get real interested is that Jesus says he's going to personally escort us there. I think that's cool. Yeah. But what could it mean? You know, I will, where I am going, I will take you. This kind of stuff to me is just barely imaginable. And I don't think God is intending to give us a really clear, like satisfactory picture 
of what to expect in terms of home and property in the future. There's glimpses, but there's something bigger and clearer here than that. That stuff is too um, foggy. I think that uh, the emphasis is overwhelmingly on Jesus and the fact that there are many, many rooms. So kind of like in case you thought that this was just for an elite few that are just like you. No, believe me, this is an expansive estate. Welcome to many, many. Big, big, big. I will come and get you. In the Greek is that parousia word. I will return. We've maybe heard of that. If you know, if you've been around the church for uh, an amount of time, you might have heard about Christ's parousia or his return. Well, that's what he's talking about here. And the word is kind of two ideas put together. Presence uh, is para beside, and then usia or essence. So the idea of being or to be. So a parousia is to be beside. Uh, in Jesus's world, you would use this when a, when like a dignitary or a royal official was coming in to, to be beside or with the people. And in the other Gospels, there's a lot more made about this parousia or second coming or return of Christ. But John mentions it real quickly in about a half dozen passages. And, and here's the sort of culmination of John's thinking. What we call heaven, Jesus calls where I am. <laughs> okay? Like, if you want to live in heaven, it's where I am, says Jesus. Then we walk by the man. We're walking in heaven. Heaven is, in John's language and ideas, heaven is that real presence of Christ with his people. So when I sit with Rhonda at a picnic table, socially distanced, and we shared the love of Jesus, we experience the hope and the healing of heaven for real. And we can do this with all of our neighbors and one another. And in doing that, we become the euangelion or the gospel. We become that goodness of God. We walk by the man. Over and over, like seven or eight times, Jesus is referring to himself as he describes how the disciples will be taken to the Father's house. And you know the way to where I am going, Jesus says. You you already know it. Okay? Uh, this is an important thing to pay attention to here because I think with his next verses we hear quoted often and I see him on protests and at rallies, sometimes in billboards that have fire for the border. <laughs> you know, it's weird. So it's we have to pay really close attention to him. But right off the bat, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And verse 5, no, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Okay, that's a pretty memorable self-definition of Jesus, I think. <laughs> I, I remember that all the time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus. Well, that's nice, says Thomas, but we don't know what you're talking about. Sounds great. What does it mean? Another world? Is it a spiritual place you're going? Is it the planet freaking Endor? You know, are Ewoks included in God's saving love or what? <laughs> we don't know what you're talking about, says Thomas. So if we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And then Jesus, you know, refers to a bumper sticker that I saw on a Winnebago once on I-94 in Montana. 
well, you know, he's a, he can see into the future, right? So he saw that bumper. <laughs> That's probably blasphemous. I don't mean to be that way. But no, this bumper sticker said the journey is the destination. It's not trying to get somewhere out there. It's about learning the way of life right now, the way we live. We can walk by the man right now. And in doing so, we walk in the presence of God. We can walk by the Christ, by Jesus, like him. Huh? <laughs> we might say, what is that? Well, Jesus said in verse 4, you already know the way. You know how I live, Jesus said. You know what I believe and pay attention to. You've seen how I trust the Father and what he's promised. You've watched how I pray and entrust myself to his will. You know the way of loving the neighbor, just as I have shown you, just like you and even myself have been participating. You already know the way. Hang on to me when I am with you, and then when I'm not, hang on to my word. Abide in me, and I will abide in you, Jesus has already told them before. You know the way, he says, and that, I think, raises a few really good questions for us. Really good. I like good questions. Is this an exclusive claim? Is Jesus the only way? And what does that mean? Another one is, do all people who are following Jesus actually know that they are following Jesus? Is it possible that our neighbors could be pursuing the love and the life of the one true life-giving God and not really associate it with the name Jesus of Nazareth? I am positive that I am not the first one who raised this question for you. <laughs> you know, these are the questions we talk about all the time. Well, this this passage is certainly part of those dialogues. So here's a quick glance at a few noteworthy ways that our church has interpreted this. Roll way back to, you know, 350 A.D. to four, early 400s A.D. We have St. John Chrysostom. We called him the Golden Tongue. And he immediately reminds us to pay attention to the audience. Jesus is not, N-O-T, not out in public with a big booming message to the neighborhood hurling at people, I'm the only way, right? He, he did not give this as a challenging exhortation to the world. I've already said, and you know too, this is a deeply intimate, private moment with his most trusted disciples. It wasn't on billboards and bumper stickers. It was not used in any way, shape, or form to be a taunt. You're in the wrong spot, you people. This is the right way. Where are you? It was never, ever intended for that. So Chrysostom is picking up on that in the 300s. All right, that's good. This is not a taunt, he says, but an encouragement. And here's his own words, St. John Chrysostom. Remaining with the Father... He was the truth and the life. Putting on flesh, he became the way. Therefore, it is not said to thee, labor in finding a way to come to the truth and the life. This is not said to thee. Okay? He's saying, you don't have to work really hard to find what is true and what brings life. The way has been shown. God put on flesh. I tell you, in my own life, as I have labored to find what we would call the good life, I have worked my body into pain and exhaustion, and to find out what is most true about myself, my sexuality, my desires, my humanity. Oh, you can labor forever. 
so difficult to all these. It's like taskmasters. Do this, say that, wear this, buy this, all right, and then you'll be happy. It'll be good. Sometimes you come to the point of death. You're so maxed out. You're so stressed. You can't even hold what little life is left of yours together. You know, it's like, well, maybe in a month I'll get to breathe. And, and, and it's like, yeah, it's Chrysostom right off the bat is like, actually, the point of Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life is an intimate invite to recognize if you're living outside the will of God, it's going to totally exhaust you. And if you're living within the life of Christ, even as life's troubles brutalize us, we can be alive. We can walk by the man named Jesus. Truth and life are in his way, and it is filled with light and love and goodness. Well, Augustine lived at the same time uh, as Chrysostom. I think he lived a little bit longer, 20, 30 years longer than him. But he had a famous statement about this sermon. uh, And Augustine said, walk by the man and thou wilt arrive at God. And that's, you know, the title of this sermon, walk by the man. Walk by Jesus, and you will arrive at God. Uh, much later, a Byzantine archbishop named Theophylact, uh, you know, lived in the late 11th, 12th century. He said something like this, When you are engaged in the practical life, then Jesus is the way. And when you are engaged in the contemplative life, then Jesus is the truth. Notice how the idea sort of blossoms. Because Jesus is the truth, he cannot be mistaken. And because Jesus is the life, death cannot stop him on his way. I think that's a really, the two are kind of subordinate to life itself. Life itself is the contemplative truth of Jesus, and it's his way, it's his way of thinking and acting. We could boil it down even further. It's his way of thinking and acting. And I think folks really had a hard time with Jesus because they did not think his picture of the Father was legitimate. Jesus kept depicting the Father as too forgiving. He must be mistaken. Jesus' love for his enemies, rather than slaughtering them, was, it was a nice idea. But the Father knows the deeper reality. And so Jesus might be a little bit off, a little bit on his way of dealing with enemies. You see? But when Jesus says, no, I am the truth, he's saying, I'm not mistaken about anything. When Peter cut that Roman centurion's ear off to try to protect me and preserve me, he was wrong. And and I am speaking for the Father. And I picked that ear up and I healed it. I put it back on his head because that is the deep nature of God. And Jesus's view of material wealth really bummed people out. You know, that was nice for a guy who can make bread out of air. <laughs> But it's not really tangible for those of us, you know, who have to work. He, you know, we love Jesus. He's awesome. Hallelujah. Praise his holy name. But, you know, he's just not up to speed on the whole wealth and money and whatever. He didn't have a portfolio to maintain. I mean, come on. (laughs) So I think we often we often diminish that the way of Christ is totally truthful. He is the truth. He's not mistaken. He is the life, so he's not stopped by death. Thomas Akempis, he says, Without the way there is no going, and without the truth there is no knowing, and without the life there is no living. 
I am the way you should follow, says Jesus, the truth you should believe, and the life that you should hope for. So many more voices from the church could weigh in on this verse, uh, on this on this passage. I wish we were together right now so I could ask for your own impressions. What have you struggled with in these words? You know, I wonder about people who have, who have never and will never hear about anybody named Jesus of Nazareth. Have you ever wondered about that? Wondered about, say, I think the one for me that always pops up the quickest are Native Americans. We live here in America. They lived here long before anybody was, uh, you know, bringing holy Bibles over or talking about Jesus. What do we do if Jesus is the only way? Lewis and Clark, amazing heroes out here in the Pacific Northwest, they, they're such a fascinating story to read about what they did. Well, they talk about their travels from Missouri out across the plains, and then they come up to the, you know, the mountains, the Cascade Mountains, and, and they describe their meeting of the Nez Perce tribe out here. They lived in the Columbia River Gorge, did a lot of salmon fishing, a lot of trading with neighboring tribes. And as he describes it, he describes it in almost heavenly terms, like this oasis. Peace-loving and generous people, kind, thoughtful toward neighbors, creative in their beadwork and artwork that they made. Uh, deep trust in the spirit. And I know that's going to ruffle feathers as I say that, because we want to immediately be like, that's not the spirit. It's not that it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Jesus. And it's like, well, my upbringing has taught me that, you know, they're all damned straight for hell. I, I was taught that over and over and over. My wife and I have suffered uh, two miscarriages during our life. And when I was in school, some of my most loved and well-meaning professors had to help me understand that because they didn't believe in the name of Jesus, that they would be in hell forever. And I had to kind of try to come to terms with like, okay, all right. Uh, okay, if that's the way God is. And the, the thing, the only thing that helped is he's just so much more holy than you, Ben. And you just, you just can't understand how holy he is. And I'm just telling you today, I think that's not correct. I don't think that's right at all. But what do we do here? What do we do with these kinds of questions, folks who have never heard, folks who don't know? You see this little anecdote I share about people who sort of, it almost feels like they run into a really peace-loving people who are following the Spirit of God, even though they don't know it. Um, I, I, I think that the religious elitists who brought up Peter and James and John also described a, like a straight-to-hell sort of future for those who failed to believe correctly or worship correctly or live according to the correct behaviors and values. And Jesus was doing things that they just, it didn't fit with that rubric. And on this note, C.S. Lewis wrote something that I've never been able to quite shake. I want to share it with you. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that he's correct. I'm saying that I know his point is worth listening to, but it might not be true. But I have no trouble admitting that his challenge here fits with the truth that I see in Scripture and the experience I've had in God's own creation. So Lewis wonders about this same sort of statement, I am the way, and this is a claim of Jesus, and he composes a practical conclusion, he calls it. And this is C.S. Lewis's words. He says, 
God has not told us what his arrangements about other people are. We do not know that no man... Sorry, i got to start over. <laughs> God has not told us what his arrangements about other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. Lewis got in hot water for that kind of statement, no doubt. But his point is challenging. What if those Nez Perce members of the tribe, long before any Christian gospel had ever hit the shore, were actually following the way of Christ without knowing it? And that as God's death on the cross through Jesus is the atoning blood, that God could not apply that to them in his great mercy and grace. But then elsewhere in Scripture, say in Second Peter, Peter says that it is our knowledge of God that gives us everything we need for godliness and for life. You know, and that's pretty poignant. It's our knowledge of God, <laughs> not just this sort of ambiguous doing good things. So we're in a, it's a hard question. But what if his point is that nobody comes to the Father except through me, and that doesn't really apply to those who are already with the Father? That's an interesting question. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Well, what if you're already with the Father? You're already living in his way. You, you know, you're there. Jesus says, if you're not anywhere near there, then Jesus orients you to and helps you see there. But what if you're already there? So here's an example. Well, let me say one more thing. We've certainly seen verse 6 is nobody comes to the Father except through me. And, and it's used to teach on this absoluteness of Christianity. But then we see it used to like force people to be baptized. And that happened a lot. Uh, we've seen it used to execute people for the glory of God, quote-unquote. We've seen that sort of ultimatum used to demand obedience and subservience to like a code or a human religious authority. So it can, and it still does, get used very poorly. And let's say it, when it's used poorly, it is used to destroy goodness and steal life. So we recall this me that Jesus is referring to. It's himself. We consider the way he ministered to folks and helped them. He himself. We're not calling people to Christianity as much as we are to Jesus. And, and what was he? Radically inclusive. So if it's his way is the only way, he was radically inclusive. That's challenging. Everyone in his midst was worth loving. Everybody. The same scholar I mentioned before, Dale Bruner, he says, we should teach Christ as the only way of salvation without insulting persons of other convictions in the process and without speaking of Christianity as the only way to salvation. For Jesus did not say that. He said that he is the only way. So my friends at Colossae East and then everybody else listening, we have to take that point seriously. When we invite someone to 
quote, become Christian, we don't know what that means to them. And I think Christianity, quote unquote, means something uniquely different to everyone, almost like fingerprints. Like each person sees it a little bit different. But Jesus is the goal. And so we can remain inquisitive learners, disciples, seekers. We can learn in his way together. But we're pointing toward him, not toward the things that people create. Uh, I have a friend, Len Duke Lomi, who I met through missionaries in Nepal, and he tells the story of his own conversion on a harrowing mountain pass in the Himalaya. And in desperation and humility, he recognized his brokenness and his need, and he cries out to God for mercy and help. In the same way, I can imagine a just and merciful God applying the blood of Christ to men and women and children in that Nez Perce tribe or the Chippewa or the Sioux or the Crow or the Blackfeet, the Wallop or the Chinook, you know, wherever. I can imagine God doing the same thing for Lenduk in that moment. And in Lenduk's story, he would go on to become deeply involved with the church, studying the scriptures and helping in the work of translating this very book, John, into languages that it's never been translated into. So it's his story is awesome, but it started with this very baseline crying out to God. And, it, and it's just got me thinking. And if that sort of thinking freaks you out, and it's okay if it does, maybe consider the nature of God that we see in Jesus when he tells that parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember in that, you know, you've got a sinful tax collector and then the righteous Pharisee and the sinful tax collector cries out only to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, remember that guy didn't cry out to Jesus. He cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes this man who admittedly was sinful, went home in a right relation with God rather than the other man who was, you know, proudly sinless. Would God treat others in the boat the same way? Perhaps. The picture of God that I was raised with included an attitude that many people were worth throwing away. Uh, The picture of God I was given was a God who hated gay and lesbian people, He would hate so many of the things that happen in our world. He hated especially Islamic people and Hindu people and couldn't wait to destroy the Satanists and the occult people and the communists and the Democrats. (laughs) You know, there was a lot of people that God really hated. And that was a picture that I was given. And I was taught that I was safe with him as long as, but beware And the main message was stay close to your church and do what they say and then stay really far away from those throwaways. But I've learned that that's evil working in the world and it corrupts our giftedness in our life. And I hope we can agree with one heart never to participate with it again. We see Jesus's treatment of his world's throwaways. And he says, I'm here to be helping you and giving to you and healing you. It is by grace that you are saved. I love you. Don't be afraid of me. I am with you. Do not fear. I forgive you. I see you and I know you. You have never needed to feel unsafe with me because I give life abundantly. I don't destroy or steal it from you. I don't consume your goodness. I help it to grow and flourish. 
other voices claiming to be God who don't do that are not real. They're imposters. And on top of that, he says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Isn't this the most encouraging thing ever? When we see it from this angle, the passage starts to shine so brightly. If you want to know the Father, you do so by knowing his Son, Jesus, the Christos, the Messiah. We learn from the history of Christianity, yes, but we follow the Christ. We can grieve and be troubled by the weakness and damage of failed leaders and broken systems, and we are, but we don't stay troubled because we no longer have anything to fear, including death itself, because we're following Jesus. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. This is not, you would know what kind of guy he is like on a good day. And it's not what he can be like when he's choosing to be merciful. No, this is the being verb. You will know who my Father is who he is. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You haven't seen a bright picture of his good side. You haven't seen him in a particularly kind moment, but just wait till he gets with the worthless people. No, you've seen him. This is what he is. You've seen him. And then we've got good old Phil, the disciple, Philip, you know, he says, Lord, show us the father. Just show it to him. We'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, are you paying any attention, Philip, for goodness sake. Friends, we talk about having to come to Jesus. You know, I've had a come to Jesus moment, and I want to say that these last couple of years have been a come to Jesus session for me, a deep one. I've had to face beliefs that I was forced to accept in order to find belonging in the church, beliefs that ended up terrifying me beliefs that don't hold biblical water at all. They're just things that were used to control and feel safe. But nothing has actually brought safety to me like listening to Jesus. It's just wonderful if there's a way to do that in your life, to be able to just start to listen to him. It's like it just burgeons from there. It blossoms and grows. And and hear, hear me clearly. On one hand, we set out to learn about God and discover the gifts that he gave us. And we use those. This is Christianity as I see it, our church, what we're doing. We, ha- we set out to learn about God, that's discipleship, to discover how he gifted us and to use those every day to bless our church and our neighbor. It's kingdom living. And we trust that in doing this, God is healing us and changing us and transforming us into life. It, and it makes it clear for what we do and why we do it. It's about believing in Jesus, hearing him, obeying him, and being saved by him alone. So that's this real clear sort of thing for me. But on the other hand, we know that Jesus has taught us that salvation of the whole world, which he says is his goal, is actually going to remain a huge mystery to us. And we need to be okay with that. We're wise to be very careful before making bold proclamations based on this or that sentence, especially when it comes to the radical saving nature of Jesus. How Jesus is planning to draw all of those outside of the church into his salvation. I think we need to leave it in his hands. We know that salvation is by his grace. So we leave it in gracious hands, loving hands, healing hands. 
Look, said John when he was first encountering Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the whole world. That's his job. And there, there's these moments where people don't want it, and God does something with that for real. But that's not the obsession of the life with Jesus. We, it's to let him do that. Ours is to walk with him, to walk by the man, Jesus the Christ. If the Old Testament records of history and poetry and other sacred prophetic texts have allowed some confusion, and I think that they have, it's like, is God a gentle mother hen that with chesed, loving kindness, he, he keeps us gently protected under his wing? Or is he this violent, vengeful, willing to utterly ravage? Which one is he? We can't both be true. We get confused. And unless his point is just to force us into a confusedly blind submission, which I don't think it is, then we have to listen to what he says to pay attention to. And he says the point is love. That's the question to Jesus. What's this all about, the law of God? It's about loving God, loving neighbor. And that we are compelled by that love so that I see something like the bold proclamation in Hebrews and I find a great consolation. I think this is another way to say the same thing we've been saying through this whole sermon. And it goes like this. After God spoke long ago and in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, and in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. This son, the son, is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence, his being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. I hear the Spirit of God saying to me and to all who have struggled along these lines, I get it. God spoke in many ways to many generations, and they are accessible to you through the things that those generations recorded with the inspired Spirit of God, yes, and they were passed down. So yes, there has been real good, truthful knowledge of God for a very long time. But now we have the clearest, most accurate picture of God ever. Paul talks about seeing God in Christ. It's better than what we had before. And to that point, this this is the point. If you want to know what makes God so glorious, don't inform it with your own vision of glory. If you want to know his essence, what his being is like, then you have to see and hear and believe Jesus through and through. This is the heartbeat of the Father. And this is the Father who says, I am his declaration of presence to all things. I am. I exist. We sometimes use the word omnipresent to describe the nature of God. He's present throughout all his creation. Interesting, if you think about it, that Jesus goes to the Father who is omnipresent everywhere. And this love of God that compels us is the most patient, strongest, most gentle, understanding, forgiving, and healing love the world can fathom. It's not an angry, vicious. Jesus wasn't that. It is this love that compels us to trust him. We're not compelled for real by threats of harm. Threats of harm will change your behavior, no doubt. We're not compelled by threats of harm, though. We reject twisted pictures of God that make him look anything other than Jesus. 
himself. And with one heart and one mind and one faith, as the people of God, I say we walk by the man. And in doing so, we find God. Martin Luther wrote this, and it's a really good place to land it. He said, his going, so Jesus' going, his going is itself a coming. For he goes to the Father, to whom all things are present, so that by his departure he becomes more accessible to his disciples than ever before. May you see this week how Jesus is open arms, wide welcoming you into healing and goodness and truth and the abundant kind of life, a good life filled with things I just can't describe with words. May you know that he is present and that with him you're safe and that he says, don't be afraid for I am with you and I love you and I'll heal you and pick you up. His going is itself a coming, for he goes to the Father to whom all things are present, so that by his departure he becomes more accessible to his disciples than ever before. And so we walk by the man. Amen.